Welcome to the Purple Political Breakdown. A lot of people view institutions as these perfect objects that uh, just deliver results 24-7, right? And it's all contingent upon funding, right? And even when they have the funding, it's not always going to get like uh, all the T's crossed and then the I's dotted. It's like you can give a person a fish for a day and they'll eat for a day. But if you teach them how to fish, they'll feed themselves forever. And the problem is nobody wants to learn to fish when they're getting handed fish. This is kind of the biggest reasons why people don't like welfare is because they feel like welfare is one, not incentivizing them enough to get out, and two, kind of incentivizing them to be a broken family versus being a uh, you know two-parent household. Do you want a great website like this? This is my podcast website where I direct the audience to come to watch the content, listen to the content, read the blogs, and much, much more. If you want to have your own customizable podcast website, then join my affiliate link in my description to sign up for something called PodPage, and they can help you customize an easy podcast website for your personal podcast. Sign up to get a discount now. Again, use the link in my description to join PodPage now. Are you enjoying today's podcast episode? I really hope you do. And I really hope you enjoy the fact that I have an amazing guest talking with me and having this great discussion. If you, as an individual, personally have your own podcast, and maybe you want to have great guests on your podcast as well, well, I got a deal for you. In my description, there is a link to something called Podmatch. Make sure to join that link through my affiliate link so you can sign up to get matched up with other podcast hosts and podcast guests so you make sure you are never missing an episode without a productive guest to have an amazing conversation with. Podmatch is similar to any other kind of matching site for the most part, and it's super easy You Just $6 a month, you can have a guest for each and every podcast episode that is tailored to your specific topic. So again, join the link in my description and join Podmatch now. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode number 38 of the Purple Political Breakdown. Uh, this is your host, your guy, the man of the hour, Riddell Lewis, and my co-hosts, Jonathan and Paul, here today as we plan to talk about uh, welfare. I'm sure welfare is one of the more interesting discussions, and one of the ones that definitely I don't believe is highlighted nearly enough as it should be in like general political conversation. So we should see how this uh, conversation goes, of course. Uh, so with that said, John, Paul, how y'all doing today? I'm doing well. I'm uh, recovering from a root canal right now, so I'm all right. Fun, fun. Um, oh, with that said, it's funny story. Not necessarily, it's related, but uh, not necessarily a root canal. So I still have to get my... Um, wisdom teeth taken out right i still haven't gotten that taken out and i you know what when you're at boot camp the funny thing is like they call people to get their wisdom teeth taken out like they call so many people up and if you get your wisdom teeth taken out like you don't have to do that day of training that like just one day you get off of training just complete bed rest so um they called me and every time they called me they like 
it's not there yet. So literally everybody there got their wisdom tea taken out besides me. And now I'm just like, they got a free like scenario of wisdom tea taken out at boot camp, and I'm just here just waiting, no knowing that I eventually am gonna have to pay for this thing. It's just like L L complete L that right is, there. That is tragic. My wisdom teeth wasn't wasn't horrible. Like apparently I just had like a really good surgeon because they were severely impacted. Because everybody wants to know about my teeth, obviously. Um but it wasn't that bad for me. I've heard like some horror stories. Like my my one friend, when he got his wisdom teeth pulled out, he started calling his mom a hoe because he was like <laughs> so delirious from the the medicine. But it's like it took me a long time to like get knocked out by the medicine, and I woke up like three or four times during the surgery. So, mm-hmm. but it wasn't that bad. So, yeah, I'm a pretty in control like. To be fair, I wouldn't know when in terms of those drugs, I can't like lie and know uh, how exactly I would act, but I'm pretty composed when I'm like drunk or high for the most part. So um, I'm not, I never really have a problem where I'm just going to do something really, really stupid. Uh, I feel like, I mean, they say it all the time when you're like really in that very uh, delirious state, you kind of act your truest way of like who you are. So in those situations, I just it just kind of tells me that you know people want to be bad people, and I'm out here just like a good guy. I know how to act. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, a W for me. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Uh, but with that said, let's dive into the topic at hand. Uh, we're gonna start off with the review. I haven't read one in a while, so uh, this one is uh interesting and uh kind of constructive criticism. It seems. Uh, this is from Heather, former Hooter. Uh, they said the points in the race episode aren't really supported by evidence, more like Randall's opinion, which isn't always super clear or organized. I also couldn't hear the intro audio over the music. That said, Randall does make some good and important points, and I love the topic of this podcast, and I feel like it's super needed. Randall's hope and optimism is probably the best thing about the show. Thank you for so very much. Um, you know, uh, people call me Randall is something I'm very comfortable with and uh, very used to at this point. Getting my name correctly right. is probably more rare than getting my name uh, incorrectly. So, yeah, I've been called so many different things throughout my life. It's just like, you know, YOLO. We just ride. We just ride. My but, last name butchered regularly. I feel like last names, especially for like, are just generally harder, yeah. uh, especially if you like a European last name or like a uh arabian last name then it gets pretty difficult but it is what it is i don't remember what race episode you're referring to um when it comes to being supported by evidence or not i'm not really sure what you're referring to but appreciate the kind words of my hope and optimism but you know we, we uh try to enact this hope and not just be blindly optimistic that's not what we're here to do of course you're so talking about the um when we covered the Supreme Court overturning. I wonder if that's the one she's talking about. I don't feel like we talked about. I mean, obviously, we talked about race, but I didn't feel like we'd said anything. We talked about college admissions, right? Yeah. Yeah, but it was all the. Um, I totally just lost the term for it, but it's based of action. Yeah, affirmative action. Yeah. Based on race. It might have been an episode like 
prior like a while ago so i'm not i can't really say what exactly but you know with that said if anytime you guys are leaving a review or if you guys want to email us of course you can email us and uh say your opinion say what you got to say feel free to do that let us know what you think we got wrong and i'm more than interested in have people uh kind of uh see what they got if they want to come up here and kind of relay their thoughts that's something that we always are uh, interested in doing. So you feel free to email us. The email is in the description. And if you want to support the show, that is also in the description as well. As we continue to entertain and inform the audience, the populace. So with that said, let's start off with what you need to know. So here's a few things that are going on currently in uh, society. Uh, first thing is the U.S. economy grew at an annualized rate of 2.4% in the second quarter of the year. Eventually, hopefully, we can get those uh, food prices down. We'll see. Uh, scientists have shown transfusing blood from younger to older mice have increased the lifespan of older mice. The estimation is if they are able to kind of translate this to human trials, that that can increase the life of a human by eight years. Very interesting. Uh, the whole situation with Mitchell McConnell, when he had like a whole episode when he was giving a speech and he kind of just froze on the stand. So that was a very weird circumstance. Uh, Biden signs orders that transfers decision making processes or decision making powers on the prosecution of military crimes, including sexual assault from commanders to independent military attorneys. So this is very interesting. I mean, people have said time and time again that there's a huge like uh, sexual assault problem in the military for, you know, fair play and having an independent party handle these instead of, uh, you know, people involved in the military. Interesting. I'm very curious uh, how much uh, corruption that people may or may not say is in the military currently to kind of uh adhere to this but interesting nonetheless and recently there has been a suspected uh, attacks from china uh, especially virtual in terms of like uh chinese infra uh, u.s infrastructure um i forgot all the things that they were potentially quote-unquote like hacking um but apparently this is a problem the biden administration is trying to tackle and they're trying to figure out is it actually happening? Get more evidence, do an investigation. So uh, we'll see what China is trying to do. Will this get rid of TikTok for good, considering how sus China might, may or may not be? Who knows? So what do you all think about the uh, current things that is going on? I think the uh, executive order that uh, Joe Biden made with the OSTC is a really good one. Uh, the UCMJ has had a lot of issues, and it's been burdening, burdening our command staff uh, with UCMJ uh, violations. Um, in reality, an infantry commander should be someone that shouldn't have to be called up to a judicial proceeding within the UCMJ uh, courts, right? Uh, to me, it seems like it's a waste of time to put these guys up there and to have the uh, OSTC replace that uh, in the place of commanders, I think is the option because it basically allows it to be significantly more clinical than it was before thing um it's like uh i i think it's gonna really like pave a good way so we get like only the fact 
these things. We are having a full scale investigative board like uh, step in and the possibility now for like a true and appropriate justice is higher than it's ever been before. Uh, the biggest issue we had in the past, if uh, for those uncertain, right, is there's a lot of instances in which those that might have had ties to the defense uh, because they were like an infantry level commander or some other commander that was appointed to that board. Uh, sometimes it would uh, become the case where they would be <laughs> kind of thrown into an area where they could show bias. This is a new one that basically steps in and reorders a lot of this. And, you know, I'm going to quote it right from the site, right? I think uh, one of the best parts is uh, that they said for the executive order, delineating the relationship and author authorized interactions between special trial counsel and commanders to protect the independence of special trial counsel is like I think one of the most important parts, right? Because special trial counsel is something that just hasn't existed until then. And especially for the sexual assault issue in this military, which is hurting retention rates, uh, as well as like um, the myriad of false accusations, uh, that's something that they need to clamp down on. And this is the best option possible. So, yeah. I think it's interesting everything that happened with, I believe he was a senator, right? Uh, when he very obviously was giving that speech and just froze up um, and was probably having a stroke. Is that. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. 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 McConnell. Yep. I think I think it's rather indicative of a problem in our culture. How many jokes I just saw about that? Like, obviously, this man had a rather severe mental, like, pro probably a stroke. I don't know if they made an announcement, but just meme after meme and joke after joke. There's like a couple of people that were like sincere about it. But I just think it's interesting how many people immediately just went to making fun of this guy and, and, and making jokes about it instead of like any level of concern for someone that so obviously is having a, a, a problem. And I can actually tie this a lot of, uh, back to like how we treat Joe Biden. Like a lot of people, uh, not not everyone, but there's, a, there's certainly a handful of people, um, especially on the right, that take the time and just make fun of him because when he stutters during his speech or has these issues, but it's very obvious that there's some other problem going on. Obviously this is man is uh, in stages of senality, possibly dementia, and we just can't take anything seriously anymore uh, or very few things seriously. I should say not any, everything, but like when it comes to like actual issues, injuries, problems, like so many of us just, immediately go to making jokes about it and trying to get like some sort of comedy bit instead of any level of reverence for something like that. And I, I think it's in, indicative of a, a little bit of a problem in our culture. Um, Real quick. So I'm going to respond to that, but Jonathan, I'm going to be honest. Your mic keeps on going like high, it... low, okay. like the audio it's keeps good. on like waving. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right, while he gets kind of uh get that set up. Um I mean, I I definitely feel that. I think I I kind of seen it in two ways because I'm always one of those individuals that loves to kind of poke fun at a lot of different circumstances and scenarios and you know, I love to joke around um and not really take life too seriously. I think there's something to be said about, you know, the joy of comedy as they say. I mean, some of the most notable comedians really just go at anything and everything. The only time it really becomes a problem for me is when there's like intentional, intentional malice behind the words that are being said. 
for example, the the situation with the uh, billionaires in the submarine, right? When um, I was, for the most part, it didn't seem like people were joking to joke. It seemed like people were joking because they wanted the billionaires to die. So, because um, I've heard people actually say, I was like, the, considering how the jokes were framed, I said something about it on Twitter. And someone commented, I mean, they, they're billionaires, like they're they're evil just because they're billionaires. So they deserve to die. Right. So that was kind of the the marker. So the fact that they think they deserve to die, like if someone kind of framed a joke in McConnell's like, oh, he's an 80 year old senator and he's an old white man and he's probably like extremely rich. He probably deserves to die and then makes jokes based on that. Then that's obviously wrong to me because that's kind of feeds into the idea of um, stereotyping and using those stereotypes to justify uh, ruthless remarks about an individual. So uh, I'm okay with jokes. I think comedy is good. I, obviously, as they say, um, you have to be a certain type of comedian to joke about certain things. Like there's a way and there's a craft to do it, but it's very apparent when people are joking they're just being honest of being ruthless and kind of relaying how they feel so i would say our culture is becoming much more crass and negative and trying to mm -hmm. disguise it as a joke more so than uh joking as a bad thing so that especially better? with social media yeah it's better okay a1 mic social media allows you to say whatever you want behind a screen so would they say it in McConnell's face? Probably not. He's an eighty-year-old man. Probably not. So, yeah, I do. I definitely think there's something to be said there. So, with that said, uh, we're gonna dive into our subtopic of the day: bipartisanship at work. As you guys know, this is a debate segment where I have Paul and Jonathan debate each other as two people on two sides of the aisle. And it starts off with a one-minute opening, three-minute response, two-minute close. And it really just tells people, not necessarily whether or not you have to agree with the opinions they have here, but it, at the very least, kind of tells you how to debate. It tells you um, the importance of debate and what can be resolved from debate. And it just gives you a more nuanced way to kind of discuss political topics if you, for some reason, cannot be, have a civil discussion as we do constantly on the show, at the very least, have a structured debate, leave it at that, and then move on. So with that said, uh, you guys have a choice of two topics here. Um, you guys could choose between the is the jury selective uh, selection process effective in the social media era, or you can discuss should countries be invaded or be warranted to... Could, should countries that are invaded be warranted in attacking citizens of the aggressor at their homeland? So which do y'all prefer? I could definitely do the second one. I think we're going to probably agree on the first one. I I really don't have a preference. So, All right. Two, guy, two guys are ready to talk about countries and being aggressive and all that good stuff. And it kind of falls in line with the uh, current discussion regarding uh, the Ukraine-Moscow situation. So with that said, one-minute opening, and let's start off with Jonathan. Jonathan, let go when you're ready. So 
I don't know how much Paul and I will agree or disagree on this. Um, I don't know that is this necessarily like a super partisan issue. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. I definitely feel like there's, from what More, I've seen, there's there's definitely people on certain sides that says it's not warranted to attack innocent people, just even though you're being aggressed upon. And then there's other people said, "Hey, man, love it. It's war. So you know, do what you got to do." So I definitely think so. I think it would depend a lot on the the level of aggression, but um, okay. Um, to get to give you a frame, let's say a one country sent missiles to another country, um, so they're the ones being invaded. So Ukraine, Russia, perfect perfect example. Russia is invading Ukraine. Ukraine is defending themselves, and then they decide, you know what, I'm going to take the fight to them. And they decide to bomb peaceful cities that are not involved in their country. So kind of a, think of it like that. Would, would that be warranted? Would that be justified? Would you be okay with it? Okay. I guess I can go. I'll start. All right. Let me know when you're ready. So I would say a lot of it would, would have to be a rather particular method or, or level of aggression i think when it comes to war there are certain um levels of respectability that were agreed upon for thousands of years until recent modern war that relatively started in around the 17th century um or rather 19th century in the 1800s with um wars that kind of took along the american style of war when we would do you know this total war method and I think when it comes down to protecting uh, your own people, when it comes to protecting your country, there are certain moral gray areas that exist in war. If it is a minor level aggression, I think that that is probably unwarranted. But in most cases, I would say it is probably unwarranted. But there are certain areas where it's kind of attrition and you're trying to take out centers where food is produced those kind of areas. I don't know that there could ever be a moral justification of attacking an entirely unrelated city just flat out. But if it is a civilian area where weapons are produced, where food is produced, when it comes to war, you have an obligation to protect your country. All right, I gave you some overtime because I, f I forgot to put the fingers up, so that's my fault. Give uh, Paul some more time if he needs, but needs to. But uh, yeah, Paul, go ahead. One minute. Let me go when you're ready. I'm ready. Go for it. Creating conditions in which is uh, completely uninhabitable is one of the ma major uh, areas nations should take upon themselves in the case of war in which there's uh, being threatened. Uh, for instance, you know, if you are a country and the other country's uh, general resolve politically is for the complete seizure of your own, uh, at that point, all bets are off on principle because uh, you are in a, almost a Hegelian uh, master-slave situation where uh, someone has to kind of come out on top, right? Uh, the general principle here is that um, although, you know, uh, these groups might not be affiliated with the war, they still have some element of support or uh, lack of support for the war. They still are people that are going to be producing for the war. And it makes it as good of a target as anybody else in that situation. So in the case of sovereignty being threatened, uh, absolutely. 
uh, if like uh, the Canadians try to invade the United States, I'd be in favor for like lobbing bombs at Toronto. 100%. That's all. All right. Excellent. Um, not the lobbying bombs, but you know, excellent debate. Excellent debate. Uh, with that said, 30 minute rebuttal. Uh, Paul, you can start. Uh, so I think uh, Jonathan and I probably agree a lot on uh, some of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, uh, the big thing is, I'll say this, right? Um, I think that uh, here, you know what? I'll spice it up for you, Riddell, right? Uh, I think it. that the uh, Irish Republican Army had uh, some element of uh, adequate circumstance to uh, conduct some of its attacks, right? Uh, it's uh, similar to that of, um, you know, what's the word for it? It's similar to that of within the limelight of just general revolution, right? Uh, you, you cannot actually have the ability to wage insurgency whatsoever, right? Uh, without having to like, you know, have some form of civilian casualty or another, right? And uh, there's no such thing as this like clean revolution that occurs, right? I think that's like the, the thing we could probably disagree on. Uh, so I think, I of course, I think these people should be locked up and destroyed. But within the prospect as an American whose country was founded by revolutionaries, I think that uh, it's kind of coy for us to uh, shoot against it. Say that it's wrong. I would like to hear your thoughts on that. Go ahead. You, you know, generally, I think when if you are like a sovereign nation, you do have an obligation to protect yourself. You know, I think. I I would love to say that there's a very clean set of morals that we can base our actions upon when it comes to war. Um, and I think to a certain extent there are. You know, we see this in America. I made a little bit of a misstatement when I said there is like generally agreed upon rules of war for thousands of years. Not necessarily true. Because when you get on like either ends of the 16, the, from like the 1300s to like the 1700s, there were really there were really no rules to war. It was just kind of total chaos. Like, look at the Mongols, look at all that. And it's like, I would, you know, using the Mongols is a great example because they just went on an absolute crusade, relatively speaking, of all through Europe and Asia area. And any single one of those citizens or towns or countries that they invaded would have every right to try to go back and, and conquer a, a previous settlement of the Mongols. You know, same thing with, when Britain invaded pretty much half the world, like when it comes to protecting your home, I don't think there the morals just become gray. And so once I don't think me and Paul disagree on this uh, absolutely. Like I could make a an argument for devil's advocate of his side and say, you know, it is never right to take innocent life. Innocent life should be preserved. Innocent life should be. Um, it should be you know, protected at all costs. But when it comes to an area like this, when it comes to war, I mean, even the Bible has some pretty graphic war parts in it, where it's, you know, when people attacked Israel, you know, God, uh, uh, you know, permitted some, he in fact instructed the Israelites to do some very dark things to protect their home. And I would say, you know, we can, when it comes to protecting your home, they're just our simple rules that you you got to do what you got to do like same thing with my house like if somebody comes in and tries to invade my house like i'm going to do what's necessary to protect it and what's inside of it and i think a government has an obligation to do that i think 
you probably could create some specifications about attacking important locations, attacking, um, you know, Bay areas where there's, like I said before, grain production, food production in general, and try to limit casualties. But at some point, it comes to um, there's just the strategy of arbitration. All right. So there's too much kumbaya out here. Yeah. Right? So um, <laughs> with that, with that said, what I'm more curious about, and I'll give you as your two minutes to kind of respond to this question, is although I had an idea that in general the the idea of doing what is necessary to protect yourself, you guys would agree upon because I feel like that the you know pretty rational state uh, statement to say in in general when it comes to war. I was curious about scope, right? So scope is the the factor that I don't know if you guys necessarily align on. So you know, the the question would be here: Would um, was America justified in saying sending two nuclear bombs to keep uh, at Japan after attacking Pearl Harbor? Absolutely. So in these in these situations where that's one example, and I could think of a, a few more, of course, but I'm curious more so on scope when do you think the line is too far so uh i'll let paul go first got two minutes yeah when you do it without reason right like uh if your country is engaging in genocide um with like real no like no real political actually no even in the case of political goal it's not okay uh just when your country starts uh, mass bombing civilian populations right uh you kind of run this risk of uh you know, becoming like that of like the Nazis or something like that. Right. It's not worth doing. I mean, the reason why we dropped the atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was just simply in virtue of the fact that um, these are two areas that uh, were of heavy industry that were contributing to the war effort. And furthermore would, you know, as I believe save countless American lives. Uh, if we were to drop it on Berlin after the Nazis surrendered, uh, or on Tokyo after the Japanese surrendered, uh, that would be a disgusting and cruel act. And I, I'm not sure I'd be proud to be an American. Yeah. All right. Jonathan, rebuttal. So I would, I would say that the, the line is when it is no longer like strategic to do so, or when there is no evidence of the benefit of. So, for example, you know, there was that was a when it comes to the two atom bombs, that was a strategic move. Every every single bit of evidence that we had pointed to the fact that Japan was dead set on becoming the empire of the rising sun, where it never sets, similar to how Britain was in the past. You know, there's transmissions from generals saying that if we are willing to sacrifice two million Japanese lives, then we can win this war. I mean, they were handing out uh, backpacks with explosives to children to jump under tanks when they were prepared for us to land on the mainland. So I think that the line is drawn when there can be no positive outcome for it. It is the only reason is like the, the Blitzkrieg in, in London. The only reason was to destroy enemy or, or civilian morale by just sheer death. Like that is obviously a moral atrocity. There is no strategic thing to be gained from that. Like strategically speaking, like obviously in the long run, if you can just destroy the person's will to fight, I guess that is, but that's a very dark and, and uh, immoral and or moral or good ends don't justify immoral means. 
So you can get a strategic outcome by not do you you can have a strategic outcome that requires the destruction of of ports of things like that that aren't directly within the line of fire. But when you get to the scope of just just needless chaos and anarchy, that's when you know that you've you've gone into the wrong. All right. So that's all we got for for that one. Um, you know, it wasn't uh, too you know different from from the perspectives. Well, at the very least, even in this situation, you kind of see that how they you know initiated their opinions and the the points that they were coming from. And you can even see, even in this scenario, from someone being on the left and someone being on the right, uh, how they came to their conclusion um, in respect from like the Americans' perspective. I would definitely be interested in engaging this conversation further in the future because I would be curious to see where the where the line is for you guys for you two because in the sense I I agree to a lot of what you're saying but there's something to be said obviously you know in this era it's not nearly as a you know issue compared to the past but there's something to be said in the past how ruthless you know a lot of people were in times of war and mm-hmm their justification obviously being you know strategic right so yeah. in those situations when we go into the ruthless nature of how they were treating other individuals and even their own people at that point stop right there yes this is a little mini ad don't skip don't skip all i want to tell you right now is that at the end of the day when it comes down to all the discussions i want to have i want to be able to communicate with you the audience i want to be able to relay a message and receive a message from everyone and try to come up with these great solutions that i keep on talking about so if you want to be part of the community make sure you go to the website and sign up for not only the email list so you can get weekly emails from me for the podcast episode informational sessions all that great stuff but also sign up to go on my discord so you can be part of the discussions debates on my live streams so be sure to go to the website www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com and go to the email list sign up and go to the discord and join the server now back to the episode uh where at that point what um what is the line we should be drawing so um you were about to say something Jonathan well i actually want to deviate it for a minute and i want to ask what paul thinks about the jury thing uh do i think social media like influences our juries yeah no. should we still have jury selection say because in the age of, is should we still have jury selection in the age of social media that's the question right Rodell? uh basically like how efficient would it really be in the age of social media oh wow okay i think we'd probably disagree on this but yeah like i, I have full confidence in it yeah uh i still think it's like uh adequate yeah even okay with yeah i do media. too okay no, we don't. <laughs> no, we don't no because i mean the jury selection like when it comes to things like really big cases like they will remove their phones and lock them in hotel yeah, rooms like, it, 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 with oj simpson like no tv access nothing it's like a self-cleaning were... tank, dude. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It, it works. And the fact that both uh, council get to, like, pick and choose who's going to be on it is, you know, speaks for itself, yeah. right? So, yeah, I don't I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the, the uh, idea behind the question was more so not, like, obviously during the trial, during the process at hand, um, whether or not you were on social media. But the 
the fact that people will be much more or less notable or more notable because of how social media kind of makes us much more intertwined, right? So uh, especially going forward is a, is a bigger question for me where everybody generations down from generations down will have a social media personality, social media, social media persona. And at that point, how easy or how hard would it be to find jurors that have absolutely no bias to the person, especially in these uh, more notable cases? Well, I think the problem is the belief that the, the councils like select unbiased people. Like obviously if you're like extremely biased, they're not going to, but part of the jury selection process is especially like the defense counsel is trying to find somebody that will be the most sympathetic to their case. Like that's how it actually plays out in reality. So, and, and then obviously the prosecution has the chance, but I believe I could be wrong. Paul could probably correct me. Um, defense counsel probably has a little bit more of an input on how the jury ends up. In most cases, I would assume I could be wrong. Do you know different, Paul? Um, I'd probably have to ask my girlfriend about it. Uh, she has a little bit more of a, a know-how in that regard. From what I've heard uh, and what, like, I guess people in my aisle will tell me, a lot of the time is uh, it's like the state that gets it. Really? Um, but, I, you know, I honestly, like, I kind of, like, uh, diverge with my uh, colleagues on that because I've seen some pretty uh, – a lot of moments where, like, for example, the Casey Anthony trial, where uh, defending counsel just like when heyday with some of its uh, jurors, like, they got yeah. some really good people, apparently. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I think it probably could depend on competency, probably. But yeah, I think, I think in, in reality, like, they're not really finding very unbiased people. Uh, I don't think they really ever have. I mean, part of the thing is you have the right to a jury of your peers. So the fact that we have the concept of like an unbiased jury, I don't know where that came from because that's not even like one of your, like that's not the right. The right is to have a jury. I mean, this is one of the things that civil rights activists really had to go on is like getting people that are actually similar. And so you'd have a lot of these uh, black people who would be in court with all white juries that don't share their same culture, don't share their same experiences. Because in this kind of instance, it it is important. to have like-minded people because that is your right is to a jury of your peers. So hmm. there, there's a, there's something to be said about uh, this discussion moving forward in this uh, age of uh, the divisiveness and social media. I would be curious to see how this kind of plays, you know, more so years down the line. I don't think it's a problem now or anything, but, you know, moving forward, let's see how much social media continues to evolve. Let's see how much uh, people are putting their whole personality on social media. And then we'll kind of see where it goes from there, in my opinion. Overall, I mean, I don't think there's an issue right now. But we eventually have to start adapting to this new era of social media. And I feel like that's one aspect that we'll have to eventually adapt in terms of jury selection. So. Uh, but that's not obviously a problem currently. Well, what is a potential problem currently is welfare. There's a lot of conversation regarding welfare and discussion of welfare. 
Um, there's a lot of people who think that welfare is obviously beneficial to the people that are in the poor communities. And there's other people who think that welfare is a problem. In fact, that it's kind of a, a endorsing being impoverished, as some people say. So the, the conversation of welfare, um, I believe it started with uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. And with that said, the some people have indicated that the initial implementation uh, implementation of welfare had general benefits, obviously, because as we know, there's things like food stamps that people can get, and people were just struggling in the situation that they are in. They can get uh, benefits in the sense that they should be able to live a relatively okay life. Because one thing about the country that is America that people have uh, said should be innately a right is like the ability to kind of live a normal, peaceful, uh, joyful life to an extent, right? So, and it should be the, the government's job to make sure and ensure that. So I guess the question here right now, and we're to dive into the conversation itself, is obviously, does currently the government still hold that role of providing welfare for these poor communities. So I guess I'm going to make it general and then we'll dive into the nitty bitties of the topics itself and we'll kind of tackle them one by one. In general, Jonathan, Paul, what do you, do you guys like, do you guys dislike welfare? I love it. Yeah. I'm not even going to like try to sugarcoat it. Like, I think it's the greatest thing in terms of a policy that can be passed by a politician, especially like in regards to how um, our middle class is like on the down and out. And uh, we're seeing uh, fewer and fewer uh, regulatory powers be passed against like uh, residential companies in this country. Uh, furthermore, with that, I mean, the those that are poor, uh, have almost like little to no way to really climb the ladder currently uh, when you take into account a lot of the external uh, variables that are actively plaguing their lives. Just in, And I'm just talking economics, right? Like, am I talking about like so, uh, socio impacts? So yeah, like usually I'm in favor of it. Like I'm in favor of uh, like welfare, like welfare subsidies for that of like farmers, right? I'm for uh, public housing. I know many people in my life who have benefited from it very much so and have launched their families into the middle class. And I'm uh, in favor of uh, food beneficiaries uh, as well as uh, other welfare outlets like um, state job programs and stuff like that that uh, actively are built to uh, build up impoverished communities and giving them housing and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's like what I'm in favor of. What do you think, so Jonathan? I I am in favor to a certain extent of the concept of a welfare system because obviously um, there will always be those that are in the down and outs and we can't just let them die on the streets. We can't just not do anything. What I'm skeptical of is, is always the extent to which we um, – the extent to which we go to subsidize that. And so I think at currently our welfare system is not doing very well, in my opinion. Uh, and from what I've read, you know, I saw a lot of um, things that indicated that 
it, it's not doing particularly well. Um, it's not uh, very effective from what I understand. Uh, perhaps one or both of you could explain why I'm wrong. Um, but regardless, my, my stance uh, is one that this was not necessarily uh, entirely the government's job to do in the first place. This was a, a precedent, uh, the, the helping of the widow and the orphan and, and the impoverished was something that belonged to the church. But it's a very modern American notion that these two things are supposed to be separated. Obviously, a lot of people believe in the separation of the church and state, of which I, I do not partake. Uh, so that that is my position on this. I think obvi obviously um, we need to have some level of, of of assisting people who are impoverished. There's a couple of problems when it is a limitless pool that you can draw from, because then you are not motivating people to um, try. Because people just simply will, uh, if they have an incentive to not do something, they won't do it. Um, and it's, I'll, I'll stop there for now. So uh, I think to like respond to it, um, there's like this notion amongst like a lot of like fellow Christians like myself that religious institutions ought to be the ones that are doing it. I agree. Right. The problem is, is our numbers are dwindling. Right. And the fact of the matter is, is that we cannot rely on an institution to provide for its community, especially when we have such a diverse population as well that that church population might not even cater to in the first place, right? Like atheists, Muslims. Um, I mean, some Protestant churches wouldn't tend to Catholics, right? These are all like areas I'd be concerned about. Um, but to like kind of give an answer to why they've been uh, so ineffective, I think it could come to uh, a couple of answers. The first one being that when it was first implemented, this country had never done it before. And uh, that leaves a lot of learning room and lessons learned through it, uh, and that, which is one of the things I'll say, look, LBJ didn't understand how to regulate welfare whatsoever. But then the second thing, and I'm going to lay blame on the Republican Party for because of this, and we do try to actually sign in the legislation to empower these welfare uh, pieces of leg legislation, including regulatory boards, they regularly sink our legislation uh, in virtue of the uh, tax uh, they the cost will incur upon the American taxpayer, right? So it's very difficult. Like, remember, right? It even extends to like other pieces of government service. Like the Republican Party was like curbing border patrol and stuff like that in the 90s for us, right? While we were the party that was trying to secure the border. And we can see similar impacts of that go into that of American welfare. Underneath the Clinton administration, when they imposed uh, welfare for work or the greatest uh, piece of welfare reform in the country, uh, the Republicans ran on a culture war piece with it and talked about how there were uh, welfare mothers that were actively extracting these benefits from the American population without any uh, statistical corroboration. After signing it in, we saw even more poverty emerge uh, when we made uh, work a stipulation with it, right? So like it just it just feels like um, a lot of the time the Republican Party is serving its electorate that wants lower taxes, right? Uh, and it's like doing that uh, to a good degree, right? I think that that's fine for a Republican voter. But if you want an explanation to why welfare fails, it's just simply because in that pursuit of serving that electorate, it necessitates destroying things that manifest into tax, uh, more taxes for the taxpayer, right? So that's just like the, I think the best and most simple 
uh, argument to kind of like or explanation to give. Yeah. So before I uh, dive into some of the criticisms of welfare, um, I, I want to kind of ask a more conceptual question um, in terms of the role of the government. Right. Because I think this is very important to kind of frame our opinions about welfare, because there are a lot of people, there's a lot of individuals who would say the government, their job is obviously to the people for, and that's a good thing to say, obviously they, that they should be there to protect the people that should be there to help the people, you know, all that good stuff. And with that said, when you have um, that type of kind of framework where you think the government should have this big job for the people, it, it would make sense that you would think that the uh, welfare program initiated by the government would be a good thing, right? And then there's other individuals who think that the government's job is not necessarily to protect the people. It's obviously the people's job to protect themselves. And the, the government is just a overseeing body that will ensure that everything at the very least stays kosher, you know, stays together, stays structured. And that's a point of view that, you know, some people say, and I think there's some value to that as well, because it puts all fault and all responsibility in the individual themselves. Right. So with that said, the, the, the conversation of welfare right now is, is it really incentivizing people to get out of the situation in their hand? One of the criticisms that has been uh, said about welfare is that people are kind of getting incentivized to stay where they are, not necessarily because they want to, but because the program that is offered versus the the potential uh, situation of getting out of that program is just not worth it. It's a pros and cons scenario. I think one example I heard is that maybe someone is on food stamps or uh, getting a welfare check at a certain level of income, obviously having X, Y, and Z kids. And then we can go through the family situation in a bit. Um, and they know that if I make, you know, a couple more thousand, if I get a raise, if I get a promotion, obviously that'll be good for my career. But my welfare would diminish it would either decrease or be gone altogether so at that point my incentive is that what i'm about to make is not even as much benefit compared to what i'm getting from being in the welfare program so they're incentivized to stay where they're at in their own head that's what they're thinking potentially in their own head so in these situations um the the question overarching question i guess for both of you here is is welfare incentivizing people to stay poor or stay where they're at because of the scare that they won't be able to you know make enough money if they keep on rising or even succeed if they kind of get out of that uh impoverished line of welfare um so is that responsibility in the government or them is incentivizing them being poor um what do y'all think yeah i don't think people want to live on welfare dude like uh i think the majority of people that are recipients of it want to get off of it as soon as possible because of the conditions they live in while on welfare uh you know i i've lived with someone that lives in a section or a uh, public housing community before and the qualities around the area 
uh, as well as the routine inspections from the uh, housing board is something that's so invasive and is something you usually want to move past, right? Uh, any young and able-bodied person is usually not planning on sticking and staying there. Of course, you have your bums of society, but that's the reason why we have the regulatory bodies that exist to weed them out, right? And they're very good at it. Uh, but once again, whenever we try to secure the funding for these regulatory bodies, we always get curbed. So yeah, I, I don't think people want to live on welfare, but it's something that we need for those that uh, need to get up off their feet, 100%. I think, I think Paul is right uh, that people don't want to live on welfare, but I think two things can be true at once. Someone can not want to do something, but also still do it anyways. Um, I think people don't want to live on welfare, but they truly don't have the incentive to get out of welfare and get the job, even though for an initial period, they might not uh, make the same amount. They might be a little bit tighter, but they won't be on welfare. And I think people discount, um, I want to find a good way to articulate this, but the the cause and effect relationship that could possibly take place when you know that you're not on welfare anymore, uh, you can be motivated to do things just because you know that you took this very astronomic step. It's like somebody that loses an initial amount of weight or, or changes this one particular habit in their life. And it causes a catalyst of events. And obviously the problem with that is that it's true, but it's not something that you can like implement policy wise. Like you can't, well, in our policy, we're going to account for and consider and that's why a lot of these policies, by and large, that take place in the government aren't as uh, effective as they can be because you can't consider all of those kind of minute factors that are true, but you just can't like budget for that. You have to you have to kind of go over. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of um, there's a hesitancy on the conservative Republican side of the aisle um, about welfare expansion and all these sorts of things is the concern that if, if we expand the welfare state, we would be trapped in the same situation that we are in now, that people are not going to be motivated to get out of the welfare state because you're making provisions for them and you're, the net just might be cast a little bit too wide when you can find alternative means. I think one of the big things, um, a lot of people on welfare I don't, Paul can probably correct me if I'm wrong. Um, single family or single person incomes. Uh, it, it's, it's very difficult to make a living with just one income, but a lot of people are divorced with a lot of kids and, and one income isn't enough. And it's a problem that there's a, just a rampant fatherlessness by and large um, because it's just simply not feasible in our, in our current economy to make a good living off of one income unless you're in like the very, very high percentile of income. And if we can, and I mean, I think this is a thing that there are more and more multi-generational households to kind of compensate for that, but there's differences because they're not combining bank accounts. They're not putting things in together, which helps compound funds and, and, and money better than just combining a bunch of people in one income, in one house. So I, I think like um, the best thing I can say here is uh, 
first off, there's a couple things I need to respond to because there's a lot of base to cover. The first thing I'll um, speak on is uh, the general point of when you uh, like have the like remove these things from these people, right? It like can cause some form of like motivation and kind of like scare them into getting a job uh, or not, kind of like encourage oh, encourage them, right? Not not remove when they get out of on their own. Sure. When they accept the promotion and make more money. You're not forcing them yeah. to do it. It's coercion. There's a difference. Sure. So the thing on that then, right, is there's still a sense of disillusionment that happens when you have to live even more paycheck to paycheck than you already did before. A lot of welfare recipients that actually get out of welfare uh, fall into a deeper poverty in a lot of instances unless they uh, join professional or uh, trade labor, right? Uh, this is like a reoccurring problem that consistently in our society because of the rental costs in the area, right? Like just affordable housing projects in and of itself are one of the hardest things to actually get. And when you finally get it, it allows you to pool money up so you can get the job done. And furthermore, when you pool enough money or you make too much money, the government will just charge you a normal rental uh, approximation or maybe something that's a little bit more affordable that's just under market, right? Uh, But just them stepping out doesn't always lead to this like circumstance uh, where they feel more empowered. A lot of people that are on welfare that actually leave it, come back to it in virtue of the fact that uh, such a high degree of disillusionment that happens because uh, the wages that are paid in this country are just so poor Um, for some of the other stuff. So like in terms of uh, the abusers of it, right. Which do exist. I would rather have um, these abusers still remain and still have this thing, uh, exist because we have regulatory bodies within it, right? I would rather have some people leech off the system and people that actively suck off of the. Uh, my the question, pipe. go ahead, Michael. If there, if there are regulatory agencies, why do we have leechers? Because like by virtue of having a regulation. Well, if we have police, why do we have crime? Right? Like, I mean, it's something that you're not going to be able to regulate away, right? It's something that's going to always exist. The entire time yeah like uh the the big issue it, it's like um and i'm sure you know this jonathan because like you've worked with law enforcement before and like talked to these people right a lot of people view institutions as these perfect objects that uh just deliver results 24 7 right and it's all contingent upon funding right and even when they have the funding it's not always going to get like uh all of the t's crossed and the i's dotted right so it, we kind of just run this risk of uh, falling on our face this way, right? So yeah, it's like something that I'm willing to like, I would rather not throw out something that houses like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans because of the bottom of the barrel, right? I want to judge it by the yeah, leaders. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I don't disagree. Like I said at the outset, I don't, obviously I'm not in favor of getting rid of welfare writ large. Obviously we need something that's going to help these people. I think, one of the issues is, and I think this is kind of a, a, a rather uh, unfair attack, but oftentimes conservatives who are not for expanding the uh, welfare state are accused of being you know, not compassionate, accused of being mean, while the liberals who are for it are the compassionate side. But the issue, I think, is uh, obviously with the word compassion. Uh, compassion is, you know, the ability to suffer with somebody. So it's a great thing if you can come down and suffer with somebody that has its place. But is it 
the, I think one of the problems is, and this is one of the things that you yourself have articulated, is there is no good, effective way of getting people off of welfare. Once they're kind of in welfare, they're kind of stuck. Because one, because yeah. we don't have a good offboarding program, and I think that's one of the issues. Is when you just articulated yourself, yeah. when somebody gets off of welfare, they get worse. They don't actually get better. And well, some yeah, I want to. I want to I want to stipulate really quick just so we like clear the uh, clear here. So um, for the most part, the majority of people that like get off of welfare uh, usually fall back into it, right? The the thing that I'm talking about that needs to be implemented past that is things like rent control, uh, higher like property taxes, and uh, um, as well as you know uh, giving yeah. like uh, bonuses to new families trying to buy homes. Yeah. The but the problem with that and and. One of the possible problems I could see with that is depending on how it works. And, and, and the problem is, is in this kind of instance, we can say this is how we should do it, but that doesn't mean that's how it's actually going to happen. But if we did institute higher taxes and these sorts of things, most times those taxes are going to affect the middle class, which all three of us are have articulated the fact that the middle class is dwindling, but they're the ones that typically will suffer the hardest from taxes. You know, the rich people, you know, they might get taxed more, but they have the money to kind of afford that. So even though they pay a higher percentage of taxes, they're not as affected just by nature of the amount that they make. So when we increase taxes, it's really going to greatly affect and like its actual weight and, and problem, the people that are in the middle class, which would just buffet another or budget another area into that very welfare state. Well, sure. Like, of course, I mean, look, I'm not someone that's going to say taxes won't impact the middle class, right? I'm not going to be a liberal that lies to you about it, right? What I'm saying is, is that the middle class is already on its way out, right? And like subsidizing programs that can actively save them is the, probably the best option, even if they do cause some pain on the pocket, right? Uh, something I'll say really briefly here, right? Just in terms of tax policy alone, I'll, I'll copy the party line. We are not taxing these high wage earners enough, right? As well as some of these companies, and we allow them to put money into uh, either liquid or non-liquid assets, and uh, or for example, like uh, that of arts, that of stocks, that of positions, right? And we continually just kind of like have them walk away on it, right? They owe a lot more, and other countries have replicated this, and we have not, right? This is a tax bracket that is ready to be mined and, you know, have income retrieved from, and we're not doing it, right? Because we're not embracing the full tax bracket. A lot of conservatives will tell me, for example, well, they do pay their portion on their individual tax, right? I'm not one of these liberals that says just tax the individual, right? I'm saying that these companies are not being taxed enough. I'm saying that these individuals don't get taxed in the same way that they're taxed abroad, right? That's what I'm getting at. And that's where we fail on. Additionally, I mean... Look, you know, I'm not someone for cutting the military, but I guess if you were, you could also give the argument for, you know, freeing up taxpayer dollars and that, but I'll never argue that in my life. But it's worth being said out loud for those in the audience that might agree. So with that said, because um, in the regards, the, the, the tough situation when it comes to taxing the, the ultra rich more has been a question on, you know, how much you want to piss them off, I guess, and the... It definitely seems like, you know, the government 
Loki is kind of scared of them, but at the same time, they do obviously, like Jonathan indicated earlier, do get taxed a lot, and most of the tax money dollar comes from it anyway. Um, but you did say something. Also... Uh, you did say something in regards to like the middle class uh, dwindling, and it's very bad, and we all talked about that. I mean, that kind of begs the question in terms of the effectiveness of welfare, right? Because at the end of the day, this program should, one of the key components, in my opinion, when you have a program like this, should be something that incentivizes people to get out of poverty, right? In terms of general wants and dislikes, of course, anybody in welfare is going to hate it personally. They're going to hate it based on the scenario, the circumstance, the environment, especially when you compare it to literally like everyone around you and at other countries, I mean, at other states inside your own country, right? But there's a difference between, like like Jonathan brought up, there's a difference between, you know, I hate it versus I'm going to do something about it because I hate it. And there's a certain level of adaptability that's, that we have to say that even if it's a bad scenario, if it's easy, and I think that's the best one. If it's easier to live this life between working harder, there are, I would argue, a good chunk of people that probably would adhere to that if they're not pushed enough, right? So I can't really speak on if the welfare system inherently is pushing people enough. But what I can say is from our current society, and it's not all to do to like, Welfare is the reason why the middle class is shrinking. That's not what I'm saying, because that's being disingenuous, right? It's a combination of a lot of factors. But welfare is definitely a part of not having people kind of get out of the impoverished community. And I do think welfare is good, because I do think there's something to be said about the the, the government um, treat, you know, protecting its people. But I think you have to go in one of two ways. You either have to protect your people more be like more strict on how you're protecting your people or protect your people less you can't have this nuanced middle ground that really doesn't do anything right so that's kind of my big thing when it comes down to like a certain government uh government programs i think one i think we've talked about one like excellent way and I don't know, Paul, you can probably kind of inform us if, if this may be the case. I don't know if there's uh, some combination of welfare to uh, the education system in the sense that it's incentivizing people to get educated, uh, get their degree and, you know, go up from there. I'm not sure, but obviously we know that the getting your degree, getting education, even if you get like a certificate online, are great ways to kind of grow your career instead of like hoping that you rise up the promotion ladder at some, um, you know, low end job. So, uh, do you know if anything like that exists for our welfare programs? What I, I'm not sure I, I'm tracking, I guess. I think what he's saying is like a, a pairing of welfare with education so that the yeah, welfare system okay. can help you on your educational journey. Got it. Yeah, those do exist. Um, the problem is, is they, they just like lack personnel to actively teach the classes in a lot of cases. Uh, in the majority of these communities, they're still under-resourced even when we have these things there, right? The big thing for us, right, the thing we say is, look, you know, it is flawed currently, right? 
and we are pushing for it to be regulated and have these resources. But the problem is, is unfortunately, sitting in the aisle for the most part is asking for almost a complete scratch out of it, right? So every single time where, you know, we maybe take one step forward, they kind of bring us back on it in a lot of cases, right? In the state of Florida, for example, in the Tampa Bay area, we had uh, different schooling or schoolhouses be used for financial literacy and English teaching programs. But because the Republican Party came in underneath Ron DeSantis, it actively superseded that of the uh, city government and uh, pushed them out, right, uh, on the crux of um, them being illegal immigrants. How many of them were illegal immigrants? Well, the, the thing that happened in it is that many of them weren't illegal immigrants, but a lot of them were people that did have criminal records, right? And because of the high police presence in the areas, they were deterred from it, right? These people are people that get into society as soon as possible if they get out of prison, right? And if we're not getting them out, they're just going to go back to crime. So, and the, the problem is, is that it's just like, it just feels like every single time there's always an excuse from the Republican Party to just like destroy everything we've been working for. Uh, and it, it's caused a lot of disillusionment for even myself. Uh, one of the things I wanted to say earlier is it's the reason why, like, you know, something I mentioned when I first joined this podcast is the reason why I just don't believe in bipartisanship anymore. And I think this is like a core reason. It's very clear that both of our parties have very different uh, agenda items when it comes to welfare. And uh, this is one that I don't think we'll ever see any middle ground on whatsoever. Because even when we push for welfare regulation, so people aren't scamming us out, they still kill us on it, right? And it just, it sucks. Like, at least in the state of Florida. I'm sure actually in Ohio, like, you guys probably have it a lot better. Um, but here, yeah. it's pretty bad. Yeah. I would say that's that's one thing um, that is probably, unfortunately, there are certain, I, I do agree that bipartisanship uh, is writ large, not very effective, Correct. not very possible, just because I, I think with certain exceptions, obviously, with the given exceptions, um, especially especially when it comes to um, the very far extremes of either side, is we just have a completely different perception of, of the way that reality is. And so, and, and the fundaments of just worldviews are just very different. I think me and you, Paul, probably see things in in just the way of reality relatively similarly. Yeah, we're just happen to see different ways of getting to that kind of same end result. Yeah, I think when it comes to certain parts of our respective parties, the farther extremes, they just see reality in completely different ways, and unfortunately, a lot of times the extreme ends dictate much of the actual party you know i'll be real with you jonathan i really i think it's your mainline base that's doing this that's like the sad part with this it's uh if anything your extremes have actually been more pro uh welfare policy for some reason uh administration implemented more of it uh than previous ones but we can i think one thing we can agree on right now paul is that our Republican, the Republican Party is very weird right now. Sure. Yeah. But uh, all, not... all, yeah, but what I'm getting at, dude, is like, it, it just, like, look, man, party, I think since Reagan has been on the warpath against uh, state infrastructure, right? In, in terms of like welfare, in terms of wealth distribution, et cetera, right? 
and mm-hmm. it's just so difficult to pass something through. I'm not saying it's you, of course, right? Because I think that you're one of these newer Republicans that might have a shot at doing some form of bipartisanship on things like this in the future. But unfortunately, for the large part, and I'm sure you could find something about my party that does the same thing, right? Like, for example, how we talk about immigration, right? But our part, your party just absolutely scalps almost all welfare legislation. Uh, and it is the uh, it is the interest of the layman voter for some reason as well, right? Like this, this extends, this is the rare instance where it extends even beyond the party line or the, the party organization. And it goes into average Jewish male Republican. If you look at any polling on the interpretation of welfare, when you exclude that of West Virginia, Kentucky, and the rest of Appalachia, Appalachia you just see a recurring trend, right? Which is, no, it's got to go. I don't want to pay taxes. So that's like, you know, like the, the thing I always say is like, look, you know, we just got to figure out a way to win the election so we can get it through and push it as far as we can and then set up enough safety measures so you guys can't destroy it, right? It's That's the way I say it. I'm not speaking with resentment. I'm just, you know, I'm speaking within the no, reality that we both speak in. I understand. Yeah. And and I, I would, if there was any kind of vote on welfare before I cited on one side or the other, I would want to know. Um, what it what it is because i'm not someone that says oh we should get rid of welfare right i would be in favor of anything that ceded authority to the church because i think that's the church's right role that's a separate issue though when it comes to actual political uh institutions regulating the welfare system i would want to to read it because i think one of the things that is very prone to happen is it, it starts out good but you know very many of these kind of institutions can can slide and, and you have to consider second third order consequences obviously any money that goes to fund the welfare system is going to have to come from somewhere else it's going to have to come it, from what the the little bit of research i was able to do i was able to find a pew research table i think it's it, it possibly could be out of date at this point i forget the exact year it came out but most people um in this thing were uh, a pro actually increasing a lot of um, a lot of these things, especially the welfare state, they were actually in favor of increasing it. And like I said, based on what you just said, Paul, it could be out of date at this point. But regardless, one of the points that this article brought up is this is when they do these kind of polling things. Obviously, you can't be super specific in saying like, well, if you were to increase the welfare state or this state or that state or this institution, that institution, it's going to have to come from this institution and that institution. And I think one of the things that I'll give my own party the benefit of the doubt on this, one of the things that conservatives probably see is they look at, well, this money is coming from this thing, and I favor and value this institution more so than the welfare state because of the other reasons I outlined previously, because people tend to get stuck in it. And if we make it, depending on how the changes and the renaissance of the the institution would change, they might be more stuck in it. It might affect the middle class more. And I think that is, uh, you could possibly know something that totally dethrones that argument of mine, but I would have to give the conservatives on this one the benefit of the doubt because I haven't done my own thorough research into it. I, I'm not sure I can really like um, agree with the benefit of the doubt there, though, because the, the, the core area yeah. of the electorate, right, uh, 
is that of tax reduction, tax reduction alone. It's not even like uh, budget allocation, right? Uh, the mainline thing that is in the interest of all local Republican voters, aside from the, like, the phenomena cases that are like the ones that like come in and come out, right? The consistent one is always taxes, right? It's always been that for the Republican Party, I think, since like uh, like the 20s, right? So, you know, it's always going to be that something else there. Obviously, this isn't to say that Republicans don't care about uh, government expenditures, right? Like they still want to spend money on certain things, right? Uh, but granted, all I'm getting at is that um, they try to spend it in like the least way possible. And then they use this. Uh, you can respond. I actually want to hear your response to this, if that's fine with you, Riddell. I want to hear what Jonathan has to say to this. Then what your party does is they use this like um, uh, this cloth to get in the way and say, we want it to be on a more local level to do it, right? Like we want it to be more manageable by the people and for the people, right? But mm -hmm. all, all it is, is it's just like um, them just like scrapping everything in the process of it, right? So I just want to like hear your thoughts on that. Like, I mean, I've never really got the argument because it seems like every single time it's said, it just seems like a way of holding up Republican hegemony in these states. Um, yeah, I would agree with uh, any anybody that says that they want it to be at a more local level, because inherently um, conservatives are are pro um, smaller federal government, greater local governments. Yeah, and the sure. problem, the reason that those kind of things would be scrapped if they were made at federal levels, is because well, I can outline a couple of reasons, but that would be getting us way off track. Sure. Um, but yeah, I would be pro making things on local levels because they're way more manageable. And I think sometimes, obviously, there's exceptions, right? Um, if it is a much more local institution, it can be more easily regulated because there would be smaller sets of people running those things. Obviously, local politics can be just as corrupt as federal politics. Yeah. But the but the uh, the chances, I think, of if people were involved, that that's 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 also one of the key issues here that I think all sides of political debate kind of forget is it's like it's a great thing to have welfare. It's a great thing to have this. But the level of people that are actually involved in it, invested in it and actually will go to the polls for local uh, local elections, for local change, for local referendums is so small. It's so small that inherently whatever party gets a hold of any given institution at the small local levels pretty much has it relatively indefinitely unless something really tragic happens, unless something really big happens that there needs to be a, a regime change. So, but, Go ahead. Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting things here said um, regarding this uh, welfare situation. And this is at the very least you say it's much of a bipartisan issue uh compared to the earlier debate topic but the at the end of the day you gotta kind of have to navigate the, the the conversation um in a way where you're trying to make sure that you're kind of incentivizing uh both sides and the the thing about you know trying to one of the things that was proposed is like okay we have to make sure that the tax dollars are in order to increase our resources we're gonna have to increase the tax dollars and obviously increasing the tax on the middle class 
not a great idea where the middle class is already shrinking. So the alternative solution is, okay, we're going to increase the tax on the extremely wealthy. Well, obviously, we, we know the problem with that is that there's really it's really hard to hold them accountable, especially as Paul mentioned earlier before he had to head out um, when they can kind of, uh, you know, reallocate their resources, not only in uh, different ways within state lines or in country lines, but also put all the resources abroad, too. So unless you want to kind of hold them to the fire, which also can be very questionable because we know that the relationship between very wealthy individuals and politicians are very, very tight. And we know that the more we kind of infuriate the wealthy, the worse it will be for the country as a whole. You know, that's just it is what it is when you live in a capitalist society. So you got to have to navigate this in a very appropriate way, in a very um, nuanced way. So that wouldn't really work. So when it comes down to taxing, um, taxing people more, you have to have a agenda and purpose that will kind of grasp people. Now, from what I'm aware of, when it comes down to welfare, the reason why it doesn't appeal to the right is that they don't believe that the current resources that is put into welfare is justifying the means, um, justifying the ends based on the amount of uh, money. I don't have the exact number in terms of how much we allocate to welfare, but I do know at the very least, it's a lot. I'm going to say that it's a lot. So we put a lot of money in our welfare, and what we're seeing is uh, the poor is increasing. Um, there are individuals that are getting incentivized to stay poor because of not necessarily the, the welfare program is good for them, but because the, the means to get out is not strong enough for them to stay out, right? Mm -hmm. So that is a problem. So And then the, the framing of welfare usually kind of revolves around the poor black community. So at that point, you're kind of looking at it in a very narrow lens and uh, not really appealing to the audience as a whole, right? Because obviously there's poor white people that you would have to appeal to as well and make it seem like it's everybody's problem. Because I would say for the most part, when it comes down to these to these conversations, it tends to be more about race. And I think it should be more not more about like economic class. I think that's we've talked. I feel like I don't know if we mentioned it a lot, but I've definitely mentioned a lot that the biggest issue right now is that um, the, the class economic class system is getting worse and worse and it doesn't seem like anybody's talking about it. And that's a problem, right? That nobody's really talking about, oh, yeah, we got to help the poor. I don't really hear politicians kind of talking about, you know, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. And there might be incentives on their end why they're not. Or at the very least, nobody's willing to bring it up. No one's willing to make a big fuss out of it. Or nobody cares. So there's there's potential a lot of factors there and um, why we're not kind of talking about that. The reason why I bring this up is that when you're kind of proposing increasing a program that's already kind of skeptical on its efficiency as of right now, and you want to increase the resources, and the way you want to increase the resources also very unrealistic because the middle class will suffer, not the poor, because obviously they either won't get taxed or get taxed very little, and the rich are damaging their, their money is just obviously going to backfire. So there are so many stipulations that you have to cross 
when it comes to increasing the welfare program. And the the one thing that I did hear from Paul that I do think is the best way to eventually kind of navigate this is making the program purely done at the state and local level. And that that is, in my opinion, the best way to go forward. Because how I see it kind of conceptually is that one, representative wise, you have a better understanding of what's going on with your poor class in your state. Obviously, it's your um, it's done at a local level. That makes sense, right? So you have a better understanding of what's going on with the poor. You have a better understanding of what they need, what resources, the welfare they would need versus, you know, having an overarching program at the federal level. So that's one thing that's obviously way more beneficial. And I think you can navigate it way, way better. It's more it seems to be more efficient Two, you can have a better representative side in terms of the efficiency of the welfare program, since you have 50 sample sizes that you can look at and how it's effectiveness works. There's going to be a state like Florida that we know. That probably is going to go like, all right, let's scale all the way back in our welfare programs. And then we're going to kind of see how that eventually works out for the people. And then you have probably a state like uh, California where they may go like, okay, we obviously need to help our, our people. We know how uh, California has a big like homeless problem already. So at that yeah. point, you get a stronger sample size and a stronger idea of the efficiency of the program. And people may say, you know, you're kind of playing with people's lives and I'm I hear you out. But at the same time, hoping that a program will work is not really moving the needle. And at the at the, at the end of the day, the game of politics is the game of politics. And you have to find ways yeah. to kind of move things forward, but also not piss off the right the wrong people. And it's just the truth of what it is. Right. Oh, were you about to say something? Um, yeah, whenever you were done. Um, one of the things that I think is, is one of the things that I was trying to highlight that I might not have articulated well is a point that you just brought up, which is people will be upset because when you do something like welfare, you're playing with people's lives. And, and that's true. And that's what makes this, I think, a particularly taboo topic is that there's so many people that are on welfare that have benefited from welfare that are very sensitive about it. And they really, and then they're sensitive about it for several reasons. That, that can be numerous and, and complex. But the problem is when something is not working as it should, it doesn't matter. Like you do ha at some point you do have to put compassion aside. And I think that's one of the things that I, I said gets levied against conservatives a lot because we see this problem. It's not working right and you have to fix it. And when I'm thinking of something like Florida and um, I'll compare this to when, when you're allergic to a certain kind of food, uh, but you don't know what the food is. You just know there's a problem and it's with the food. How you get rid of the problem is you wipe it out. You get everything. You stop eating everything and you slowly introduce things back. And then eventually you'll hit the right mix. And eventually you'll find, oh, I introduced that. That's where the symptom was wrong. So we get rid of that. And that's kind of, I think, what needs to happen with the welfare system. And people will say that, oh, well, that's not very empathetic. It's not very compassionate. That's mean of you. But it's what is like, I, I hate to be so like simplistic and use this example, but it's, I think it's an apt example. It's like you can give a person a fish for a day and they'll eat for a day. But if you teach them how to fish, they'll feed themselves forever. And the problem is nobody wants to learn to fish when they're getting handed fish. 
Like there's there's no reason to do it. And you can say all you want different, but that's just human nature. When you give somebody something for free, there is no motivation. Like I, I know this is purely anecdotal, but I when I was a kid, I never got an allowance. So I was forced to come up with other ingenuitive ways of making money. My dad would never give me money for mowing the lawn. And you know what? I had the bums in my school that were with me, not my brother, when I was homeschooled, when I was actually in school, I got allowances. And they were not, they, they, they were kind of bums, but they were also like fourth graders. So we're all kind of bums. But anyways, <laughs> but the point of it being is my dad did me a greater service by saying, you're not going to just get an allowance. You have to come up with ways to find a way to make money if you want money. And he'd say, these are some of the options you have, and I can pick from them, or I can find other things. And some of the things I picked up, other things I would come up with. But the point is, is if I was to have gotten an allowance, a lot of the things I learned, I would never have learned. One of the things that I had to do to make money was read books and write book reports on the book. So obviously I had to read the entire book and then come up with a summary and all these sorts of things. And that's something I never would have done if I knew that I wasn't going to get money for that. And that's just the way people are. Human nature is to find incentives. And if you're, give, if you're giving people incentives for the wrong thing, they're not going to change that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that with their premise. Um, there's uh, something that I, that I saw in terms of you know the welfare program in its entirety, and one thing that I said earlier in terms of the state level, I'm kind of going to abide by that. I think that's the most efficient way to implement it. But in terms of what it is and how it's done, there's certain kind of things that people need to recognize and I think we've mentioned this before I'm going to reiterate it is that a policy is great right because it obviously gives an overarching rule on how you're supposed to live life or how a certain program is supposed to affect you and the people around you but the way you're going to change people is not by a policy a policy will never change people you would have to really get in their minds and really figure out, okay, what do they want? A person who's on welfare, what they want is different from a person who buys, uh, who's a consumer from a store or who's the store manager from a store. It's different from the CEO of the company. It's different uh, taxpayer in uh, Florida and their incentives and what they want is going to be a different from a taxpayer in California and what they want. Right. So you really have to dive into these things. And the best way to do that is making sure it's at a state and local level. Now, at the end of the day, welfare needs to take into account two kind of big problems that we've been talking about. The first problem is that it's not incentivizing families. Because obviously one of the biggest problems going on, especially in the black community, is all the uh, single mother households, you know, the broken families that we've been talking about. These these families are so bad in a so number of situations. Respect to the mothers that are trying, but not having two parental figures in the home, we've seen so many disastrous scenarios in terms of the impact of the kid. Because at the end of the day, a few things will happen in this scenario. 
One, the mother will be so busy in terms of working, she can't properly care for the child. Two, mm-hmm. it won't have two different parenting styles in terms of perspective when it comes to the caring nature versus the more, um, not aggressive, but more sh- uh, disciplined nature of parenting. It won't have that type of duality to make sure that they come out okay. And three, the income just for the most part, probably won't be enough regardless of how much he or she works, right? So we know that these homes, when it comes down to these family homes, are being much more broken. And some people may equate that to welfare. It's really hard to say, but at the very least, we know the culture is kind of damaged. So making sure that it's uh, incentivized more, and it, and it could help in the sense that, okay, if you are in a family, you actually get more benefits from welfare versus when you're single. And I know how that could seem some backwards to some people in the sense that, I mean, if I'm single, I make less money. So why would they get more benefits? I think at the very least, you got to understand that when you're creating a family, when you're getting a kid, you know, you got to take it seriously. I think that's the only thing I can really tell say to you. You got to be very poignant on what you're about to do. So that's the first thing in terms of uh, the scenario regarding welfare is the, the broken families and trying to fix that. And then the second thing, obviously, is the incentive to kind of rise out of welfare that we've been talking about. Getting out of welfare to make sure you're getting out of poverty and getting into the middle class, maybe even the rich. Right. So. These are two very important points, and this is kind of the biggest reasons why people don't like welfare is because they feel like welfare is, one, not incentivizing them enough to get out, and two, kind of incentivizing them to be a broken family versus being a uh, you know two-parent household. Yeah, I think there's a couple, a couple of great points there, uh, one of which, so what a very interesting statistic that uh, since he's one of my favorite people to talk about this, I've been reading him a lot lady, Thomas Sowell points out is one of the biggest disparities that exists is the disparity between firstborns and subsequent children. And uh, what's very interesting, uh, and he did a very deep analysis about this because it, it is not quite the same with twins, but with all things being equal, when you have a firstborn and subsequent tw- children, same household, same parents, same social economic status, all this thing, regardless, the firstborn child will always, almost always do better. He'll always uh, get a be- higher level education, make more money, be just by the metrics of success we have, more successful. And the only thing that they can figure out is the difference is the the year to however much time that that child got with just the attention of both parents. But once there's a second child in the mix, immediately attention is split. And so now there's two children. And so the second child never gets the complete and total uh, attention of both parents because now there's two kids just by nature. So it's the attention is split. Now just imagine how that uh, effect can compound if it's just a mother she has three or four kids, and she's working three jobs. Those children are never going to get the same parental input, the same parental affection, the same parental advice, the just level of attention that 
children need to be nourished and nu- and um nourished and nurtured both things it's just gone and i think thomas soul brings up the point that a lot of the the family decay uh, is in part not totally i think there's other factors at play but one of them is when the government began to subsidize single mothers uh when and and so they could get better um governmental assistance if they weren't married if they were rather single they got higher level subsidies was just you know i have relatives that refuse to get married because if they do get married then they get they lose va benefits or they lose welfare benefits so i i think that's a problem i think you're totally right we should incentivize families because when you have two streams of income and you have merged bank accounts and you have all the sorts of things your wealth compounds at a level that's even different um, there's a lot of statistics uh, that sh- are show, like, even if you cohabitate, you actually still don't build wealth as much as when you get married. And one of the big differences that happens with most marriages is you combine bank accounts and your wealth when you just have interest rates and you and you put in money in your wealth compounds way more because you have merged finances. And so you build wealth way quicker. And that can help you get out of the welfare system. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said. Um, not you don't even necessarily have to make it where the family would get uh, better benefits than a single mother, but at the very least, bare minimum, you know, considering that there are people who are willing to kind of utilize this, I or kind of adopt the idea that I'm better off being single. Just make it equal. Just make the benefits relatively equal. Don't make it okay. Single mothers get more. It's just just make it equal versus them single versus them married and that type of mindset has no foundation to it so that's just uh, that's just another thing that that could help and i think those are probably the two biggest problems in terms of getting out of welfare and staying out of welfare and making sure that families are you know strong you know it could just at the very least help the scenario in place versus uh making it worse um and it, the, that's a funny statistics that you brought out because like I'm, I'm a kind of a anecdotal uh, example of that, right? I'm the oldest of a, a good number of siblings, you know, um, and it seems pretty obvious based on, you know, how I grew up. Obviously, I, I got different levels of attention and we know that the divorce rate is high. Well, you know, I was part of the statistic. Parents got divorced. And it's pretty obvious that my two youngest siblings, well, two two of the youngest siblings, and put it that way, are just don't get it. Didn't really get the attention from our father, and um, to see my family scenario now, very dramatic, very very dramatic between all my siblings, but it kind of shows you how bad these situations can get, and. I am one that, you know, I am ambitious, so I'll never stay the status quo. And I think at the very least, I I set up a good role model to my siblings to say, hey, you probably don't want to stay poor. You don't want to stay where you are. You want to keep on growing. So that's good, right? That's good for them to, at the very least, know that staying where they are is just not a good thing overall. Um, But it's, it's something to be said when you have my situation and then put in a more poor background because we were the military family at the very least. So that's a lot of benefits there. But a poor background without these innate benefits, 
and let's say the oldest who had all the care still doesn't end up great and they don't even have that role model so there's so many scenarios where you can see how it can go bad overall but at the very least i think the government should have an active role in helping the people being a part of the citizens lives helping the citizens i mean that's their job we vote our vote in our representatives to adhere to uh the whims of the people at the end of the day and that's how it should be and obviously we can't say it's always that way because politics is a game a uh, very annoying game at a lot of times where politics gets in the way from actual solutions kind of why the podcast exists in the first place uh so welfare definitely is a good thing for the most part but we definitely need to be wary of not allowing people to stand on their two feet what is that um there's a there's an analogy where you can uh give a give a horse water and you can, you can lead feed a horse for a water, day but you can't make a drink there you go see that's the one, that's the one. And uh, that's very poignant. You gotta, you gotta kind of make people. And I've said this before. You kind of have to force people to kind of take action and do something with their lives. You can't give them everything. It just doesn't work. Well, that's one of the things that I was, I was gonna bring up is like we all know children that don't know what the word no means. They just don't know what it means. And the parents think that that's better because they're being compassionate to the plight of the child, but they actually don't turn out better. Not at all. The kids who get heard know a lot do better because they become more resourceful. They find other ways to do things. Like it's the same thing now, like with parents that just give their children iPads, like when they're unhappy, when they're doing these things, when they're fussy, instead of making them go outside and play and come up with things, they give them an iPad and they just, just to get them quiet, very simple easy solution but those children they don't learn there's there's huge studies that are done granted i've only heard about them okay so i'll make that disclosure but there are many companies that uh ask the question now whether or not when you were a kid if you played with legos because legos are the bomb but kids that played with legos are way more creative and better at problem solving as opposed to kids that just played video games growing up or kids that played outside versus just sat on iPads. They're way more ingenuitive because they've exercised their creative capacities of their brains far more than kids that just played video games or just sat and watched TV, that sort of thing. I deny that statistic. <laughs> okay. Well, I will find those and send them to you. But you never played with Legos? Not really. I was... Uh... I didn't really play with toys that much from my memory. And um, I got introduced to video games, but I was more, to be fair, I was more of an outside type of guy when I was a kid, oh, which sure. is crazy nowadays. Kids just don't go outside anymore. They just well, yeah. don't play. Exactly. Um, and and they, yeah. I think, I think studies will show that they're less creative because like me and my brother to this day, actually, we still, he's got, his wife made him take him down because he's a grown ass man, but he still has maps of like worlds that we drew together when we were kids. And like our garage is filled with wooden swords that we carved and like made handles and like 
even laced leather like so we have like pretty sweet swords in our garage and 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 my brother's like a massively skilled artist because we would sit and draw out worlds and stuff and also on the lego front i have a lego castle sitting on my drawer there i have two lego ships up over there i have legos all over my room still legos are great and they're not just for kids what I said, this is what I did as a kid. I'll, I'll give some people perspective in the sense that I didn't do the Lego thing necessarily. But every night, and I'm not joking, every night what I used to do as a kid is, and this probably plays into why I'm I'm creative as an individual. Every night mm-hmm. I would create creative scenarios in my head before I go to sleep. And then mm-hmm. I would shape my fingers in a way to reenact the scenarios of what I'm doing. So, like, I would have uh, probably create some scenario where there's, like, a story of this guy becoming maybe this legendary warrior. I don't remember what I used to come up with. But every night I would do that. I would put, I'll create my fingers in, like, a particular way. And I would act like – it's kind of like action fingers on my hands every night. And then I create oh, these yeah. scenarios. Yeah, like, I would do I, that all yeah. the time when I was a kid. So that's an example where that's not necessarily, like – I mean, to be fair, people kind of have to be prone to creativity. I think I was definitely one of those. I think John probably, John, you could say was one of those, him and his brother, that they're kind of prone to creativity. But at the, at the same time, you can kind of set up your children in an environment where they can kind of let out their creativity, right? I didn't need much to be creative, but, you know, put your kid in a scenario where they're maybe, you know, put some paper out there um and let them draw put some legos in front of them you know put them in uh you know some sports environment regardless in in the in this situation giving them a tablet and say okay have fun that's not gonna feed into their creativity it's literally just feeding them information and and just kind of uh i want to say brainwash but just uh, all they're kind of doing is looking at a screen. So, you know, they so, don't really do anything. I think um, there's a great book by Sir Ken Robinson called The Element. And it's actually, uh, I don't know which one came first, the book or the TED Talk, but he still has one of the most listened to TED Talks of all time. And it's about childhood creativity and how by like the measures of like creative genius, most kids are actually creative geniuses. But throughout time, they did like a very a longitudinal study over many years with the same group of kids. And they found that like progressively all of them when they were young at a certain age met the criteria for like a creative genius. But as time went on, fewer and fewer of them were creative geniuses. So there's and, and a lot of them and he this uh, Sir Ken Robinson was one of the biggest advocates for like education reform. Um, because it is the education system that kind of killed creativity in kids and the, the other reasons as well, but by and large, it, it was the education system and his book, the element is full of like these testimonials, um, and actual research about that is a great book. It, it's fantastic. Uh, but it talks about all these different people who were, um, like the education system or their parents weren't supportive until, something happened and they were able to break out and they became like creative geniuses in each of their fields. But I think most kids are creative geniuses. I think most people have the capacity for creativity and for for great things. But I think, and to tie this back to the welfare system, 
and that conversation. The problem is, is society and family structure or education system or whatever it is, there's just realities in our world that kind of prevent us from that. And I think welfare as it is now writ large is actually holding people back from an outcome similar to how education can do that, similar to how unsupportive parents can do that. But the problem is, is when we think of supportive parents, we think of yes men. We think of, oh, a supportive child or a supportive parent, all they do is say yes to their child. But what it really is, is they say lots of no's because they can see potential for where their child is supposed to be. And they can see, oh, if they're going to continue on this path, that's not a good thing. So no, you can't go run out and play in the road because that might not have a good. And our, our, our government is not doing that. It's like I've talked about this. I've mentioned this many times. Freedom is not the freedom to do whatever it is you want. Freedom, as the founding fathers wrote it and meant it, was the freedom to do what you ought. And that is the kind of freedom our government is supposed to ensure for us, the freedom to do what we ought to do, which is not just simply handing out whatever we might need at any given basis. Yeah, I, I definitely agree to that. Um, well, we're going to have to see kind of how everything plays out. I'd be very curious if uh, we were to kind of uh, initiate a, I guess, policy or change. It would more. It would more so have to be like a change of the welfare system. So not necessarily policy, but kind of changing how it currently is to kind of uh, adapt a more local level approach. And I think there's something to be said that a lot of the federal programs that's going right now um, could benefit from you know transitioning to a more state level approach at the end of the day because at the one thing that is true about the united states and honestly people in general it's easier to kind of adhere to the people that you're closest to and what we know is that when it comes to representatives you pick your specific representative for your area you can and it's easier for you to contact your representative for your era you don't have to do this whole electoral college stuff when it comes to the president who you probably will never see in your lifetime or even talk to right so there is something we said to kind of make sure these programs are better at the state level i do think there should be some type of like threshold at the very least that the federal government can put so we don't have, you know, some state goes like, okay, we're completely taking away out of welfare or someone going like, okay, we're going overboard in terms of welfare where it's like, hey, man, you live here. We're going to give you a full condo, all bills paid for kids, have as many kids as you want. We'll pay, we'll give you a tax credit for each one, like having a threshold to make sure that, you know, these states don't go too far obviously would be a good idea but in terms of how they should enact said policy for their people i think in general would just be better at the state level i mean there's other things that the federal government should uh focus on um you know with our military with um healthcare is another interesting one that might be a state level thing we'll we'll have a we'll have a podcast episode about healthcare and uh we'll also have a podcast episode about the border which I feel like probably should be a federal thing, not a state level thing, because there's only like I don't a see of how that could be. I don't see how that could be a state thing. Yeah, it wouldn't really make sense because of most of, like only like it's like California's border is wide open. Texas one has like armed guards every ten feet. 
Yeah, yeah. So that again, we'll have someone come on uh, that was a former Border Patrol agent. We'll hear what he has to say. A lot of excellent guests coming up for uh, some interesting shows. But that's all we got for today. Hope you guys enjoyed, of course, with this show. Rate it five stars if you did. Like I said, you can support the show in the link in the description. Or you can contact us. Let me know your opinions about what we said. Or if you want to add anything, come on the show. So many things you can send me via email. And I will read it. Don't worry. So with that said, hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Um, I guess quick announcement uh, that the podcast is you know moving in very interesting directions moving forward. We're continuously trying to grow and expand the influence of the show and one big thing that we want to keep on preaching to people is that you don't have to feed into this kind of toxic political culture where it's you know the enemy even though we all live in america if you don't have my same ideological value you're my enemy we don't have to live like that because all three of us in terms of ideology we're not the similar we're not the same um, but you can have nuanced discussion, nuanced conversations, productive conversations to come up with solutions. And that's, I mean, politics is that kind of, at the end of the day, game to find out, okay, the give and take and how we're going to implement it. It doesn't need to be, okay, hell no, it's my way or the highway. You know, that's not what, that's going to solve anything. America was built on compromise, ladies and gentlemen. Come on now. So I hope you guys enjoyed.